Ed was, well, I suppose what today we call a real macho man. He was about six foot three and uh, weighed 13 and a half stone. And I'm told he had size 13 shoes. A big lad. He was extremely athletic, Ed, and he excelled in all track events. He was the star player in the American football team. And he, like Jim, was very, very well known for his speaking ability. In fact, there was one occasion when he beat, listen to this, 10,000 other entrants in a national contest, and he won as the best orator. He planned to become a lawyer when he left college. But he discovered early in his life that the Lord was calling him to be a missionary. And he withdrew from the university law school and enrolled in the School of Missionary Medicine to study dentistry, tropical diseases, and how to treat them. That was Ed. The other friend was Pete. Pete Fleming became a Christian at the age of 13 after hearing the testimony of a blind evangelist. Later, he became very, very well known for his incredible prayer life, for the maturity that he possessed as as a young man and his wonderful knowledge of the Bible. He also was a talented sportsman. He excelled in basketball and in golf. He graduated at the top of his class, many believing that he'd actually go on uh, to become a university professor. But it was not to be. Pete met Jim during a Christian mountain climbing expedition. His third friend was Roger. Roger Udarian, known to his friends as Rog, was nine years of age when he was crippled with polio. Nobody thought he'd have lived through it. Certainly, he'd have been awfully disabled. But incredibly, he overcame the effects by the time he reached high school. And he was able to excel in basketball and baseball. And actually, he became a wonderful pianist. He actually enlisted in the army, the U.S. Army, uh, as a paratrooper in 1943. And he paratrooped into, uh, he he dropped into Germany and uh, uh, he was part of a a Battle of the Rhine jump and so on. He was actually decorated there for bravery. And it was while he was in the U.S. forces that he was influenced by uh, an American chaplain and became a Christian. And he too responded to God's call on his life to become a missionary in the southern jungle of Ecuador where he worked closely with a missionary pilot called Nat Saint. Now, the final friend of Jim's that I want to mention this morning, Nathaniel, or Nat Saint, as he was known, was born into an exceedingly strong Christian family. His parents had rightly taught him the importance of going to church regularly, reading his Bible daily, praying each day. And Nat developed a strong conviction that he should serve the Lord from a very early age indeed. He was a talented young man like the others. 
And I believe at the age of seven, seven, he was actually allowed, obviously somebody helping him, uh, to hold the controls of an aeroplane for the very first time. He was only seven. Don't think, kids, it was a big airliner. Uh, but nevertheless, it was a little plane. And from then onwards, he was absolutely hooked on flying. Nat, in point of fact, became a very fantastic pilot and mechanic. Again, he was only a boy when he took the family car completely apart and put it together again, piece by piece. He was also an inventor. And a number of devices that he invented, he began, uh, eventually worked for Mission Aviation Fellowship, which is one of the loves of my life. I must admit they do a great work for the Lord. And uh, a, a number of his inventions are still used in MAF planes today, one of which being uh, the dual injection engine system. He also developed uh, something quite unusual. It was a bucket drop system, whereby he would he would he discovered how to circle his plane in ever tighter circles, high above a landing site, until a vortex was created. Now, forgive me, I didn't even know what a vortex was. So I went into Wikipedia, as one does, and it's massive, the information. I read the first paragraph, and then I thought, I'll ask all the mathematicians and physicists in LBC to describe it afterwards, because I'm still no wiser. Uh, but I do know that um, it's a sort of spiral of air, almost like you get in a, a typhlo typhoon or a cyclone, and it's a sort of circle. And he managed to circle his plane, and in an incredible way, uh, he could drop a, a bucket below at the end of a piece of rope. It says here in my notes, 1,500 feet long, and it was almost motionless. And he could drop gifts to tries below. Five young men, Jim and his four friends. Little did these five young men know what lay ahead when they volunteered to be missionaries in the South American country of Ecuador. Come back next week and discover, no, it's not as bad as that, but we are going to sing another song. Okay? Used to love him, my children's missions, doing that. And they did have us. See how far we've got. Thank you, John. Just a sec. There we go. Deep, deep in the heart of the... Ooh. That was scary deep in the heart of the uh, eastern Ecuador rainforest, that's South America, western side, not too far from Mexico, as the map looks, it is really, there lived a tribe of savages. Forgive the strong word, but they really, really were brutal killers. The name that was used for them was Orca. They were naked, naked savages, and uh, they've been described as the most violent tribe that man has ever encountered. They lived in terror of the outside world 
believing that all foreigners were cannibals. And they even lived in fear of their own people, frequently killing each other. One day, after her father and other family members were wounded and killed, a young woman, member of the tribe named Dayuma, fled with two other girls and escaped. She managed to reach a, a friendly tribe of Quechua Indians who were living not too far away, and she started to live with them. And it was while she was with that other Indian tribe that she met the sister of the pilot that we've spoken about, that saint, his sister Rachel, who was working as a missionary translating the Bible into their language. Dayuma became a very close friend of Rachel and was able to help her tremendously with her Bible translation work. And through time, Dayuma became a believer in the Lord Jesus. Her help was incredibly, uh, work was incredibly helpful later when she was teaching the missionaries a few of the Orca phrases so they could use them uh, to reach this tribe. Jim Elliot was 25 years old when in 1952 he and Pete Fleming sailed to Ecuador to begin their work as missionaries. Elizabeth, his future wife, uh, arrived a little later to begin learning the language. The task of the men, the first task, was to build a wooden hut in which they could live and then to make some sort of a runway in the heart of the jungle. It was very different from life back in the USA. Working with the Quechua Indians was a massive spiritual challenge. And clearing the jungle was a massive, was a massive physical challenge. It was back-breaking work hacking down trees and bushes to prepare a landing strip. Apparently, the intense heat and, uh, and the insects were, were absolutely awful, but they kept on day after day. Jim and Pete had both trained in giving medical help, and each day they were busy helping folk, young and old, who were sick and injured. It wasn't all work. Pete managed to find time to teach the local kids how to play volleyball. And Jim kept a daily diary of all they did. One day he was thinking about his life and the physical sacrifices that they had all made, leaving behind the comforts of home. And he wrote down in his diary words which were to become famous that have been quoted thousands, probably millions of times ever since. He wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Meditate on it for a second. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim knew that their work for the Lord would never be lost. It was of eternal value. The rainy season came. It started with a furious storm. Massive landslides wrecked the village where they were living. 
please keep praying, Jerry, for Lady. The rainforest above was awful. The, rain, the river burst its banks and, and the forest just poured down on the village below. Every single house, the trail, the runway that the guys were building, the mission station they'd established, everything was destroyed. It was a blessing, though, that all the villagers survived the storm. And Jim and Pete spent several days searching through the deep mud for any useful belongings that could be saved. It was worse to follow. Jim suffered a, a severe attack of malaria. But it was time to focus on a new work. By now, Ed McCulley had joined the team along with Elizabeth. And the men one day canoed uh, along the river looking for a site to build a new missionary station. And then they met a man, wait for it, who had 15 children. Yeah, we'll gloss over that. He had 15 children, and he invited them uh, to spend time with him and, and to live there and to set up a school. God opened another door because Elizabeth was going to be perfect for teaching the children. It was there that Jim finally proposed to Elizabeth. They were married a few weeks later on the 8th of October, Year 1953, the year I went into Christian work, that's centuries ago, and it was Jim's 26th birthday. Meanwhile, the savage Orca Indians continued to murder absolutely anybody that came near their territory. They recently killed a number of workers at an oil company who were drilling nearby. No one who ever ventured into their jungle territory came out alive. Even the nearby Jivaro tribe, who were head shrinkers, were terrified of them. One of the tribesmen named Nikai was specially known amongst his tribe and further beyond as being really, really savage. He was a cousin of Dayuma, the girl who managed to escape years before and become a Christian. These fierce, savage people were incredible. They could recognize someone's footprints in, in the same way that you and I would recognize a person's face. They had great skill at using blowpipes when they were hunting, and I'm told that their accuracy in throwing wooden spears was unrivaled. They've been described as the most violent culture ever discovered. But Jim and the other four missionary friends valued their eternal souls and were determined that they would hear the gospel. With God's help, they would reach them. For some time, Nat, the pilot, had been flying medical supplies all over the jungle. In the meantime, keeping an eye open for any sightings of possible, uh, possible orca settlement. And then one day, it happened. He returned from a flight with excitement all over his face. An orca village had been spotted. Jim was delighted. It was five years since he'd first heard about the orcas and started to pray for these people who'd never even heard the name of Jesus. Operation Orca had begun, had begun rather. So 
come back after the next song. Not too long to wait. And the next song reminds us that we need to be, all the five young American missionaries were married. Their wives were with them back at base and they began to prepare for the best way to reach the Orca Indians. The young lady, the member of the tribe, Dayuma, who had escaped from the tribe, was living with them, and as I said earlier, had now become a Christian. She was able to teach a number of Indian Orca phrases uh, that would help Jim and the others uh, to call out uh, to the Orcas in their language. Nat Saint's wife on the left there, Marge, Marjorie Marge, operated the Mission Aviation Fellowship Radio to keep in touch with the five missionary friends when they flew off and set about reaching the tribe. It was a worrying, tri a worrying time for the five wives because they all knew the risks involved. They were prayerful young women. Daily, they gathered in prayer. It's really incredible to believe that in the 1950s, may not be for the kids here this morning, but 1950s, some of us, yeah, we can remember it quite clearly. Uh, hard to believe that in the 50s with modern technology, radio, TV, video cameras, telephones, aeroplanes, that people could be living in what we used to call Stone Age conditions. The impact on these primitive people to see an aeroplane flying overhead with white men leaning out and literally over a loud hailer shouting out to them, we are your friends, welcome, we mean you no harm. In the phrases, the orca phrases that Dayuma had taught them, the impact must have been incredible. Over the coming months, relationships needed to be built up before they dare attempt a face-to-face -face meeting. Nat Saint's bucket system, the vortex referred to earlier, was going to be the perfect way to make proper contact with these primitive people and to show kindness to this lost tribe. Once a week, Nat carefully, skillfully piloted his plane in these tight circles, lowering baskets of little gifts. A kettle was one gift. Brightly coloured streamers. Other little things that they lowered. And before long, the Orca Indians got the message. They appeared in the open and started eagerly accepting the gifts. The men dropped them clothing. And on later visits, they could see that the Indians were wearing the clothes. And before long, the orcas were able uh, to send gifts back up in the, in the bucket. They even sent a parrot, incredibly. <laughs> Along with Indian headdresses, Nat, the pilot, had spotted a little strip of sand on the banks of the river, only a couple, uh, 200 meters long, apparently. It was about four and a half miles away from the orca uh, settlement. <coughs> He skillfully managed to pilot his little uh, Piper Cub plane there. And the guys nicknamed it Palm Beach. They landed there, and for the first time, 
all of them were together on Palm Beach where they built a tree house and they spent the first night together. And then they began going out into the jungle and calling out into the forest the orca phrases that they'd learnt to show the Indians that they meant them no harm. They guessed that they were being watched from the jungle shadows and in point of fact that was certainly true. A few days later a real breakthrough occurred. Three orca Indians appeared on the beach. Jim waded out into the river and signaled to them shouting in their language Punani, Punani, welcome, welcome. An older woman and then a younger woman crossed onto Palm Beach with a guy that they nicknamed George. They had a most amazing, I think this has got to be American, has it? Amazing afternoon uh, together, introducing their friends to Time Magazine. Why they would want <laughs> Time Magazine, I do not know. Uh, but they introduced them apparently to Time Magazine, elastic bands, other little trinkets, balloons, flashlights, yo-yos, and I'm told this is absolutely true, hamburgers with mustard. <laughs> the Indians, actually, the orcas, seemed quite at ease with them. In fact, George, the younger man on the left there, uh, was even given a flight over the village in Nat's play. And he shouted with delight to his fellow Indians below. They gave him a model aeroplane when he landed. And then suddenly, the young woman left and was followed by George into the jungle. The older woman stayed a little bit longer by the fire and talked with them late into the night. In the morning, when the missionaries woke up, they were alone. She'd gone. But they praised the Lord that they'd made contact with these primitive people. The next day, they didn't make any contact with them at all. They were very disappointed, so they flew back to base. They'd taken some film footage and photographs, which had been preserved all down the years. And then on the Sunday, they returned. And as the plane landed, they had some exciting news to radio back to their wives at base. They said, these are the exact words, we spotted a group of orcas on the way here. Looks like they'll be here. Uh, for an early service this afternoon. Pray for us. We'll contact you next at 4.30 p.m. The savages had other intentions. As Jim waded out into the river to welcome them, a wooden spear streamed through the air and thumped into his body. He was killed instantly. Suddenly, Orca warriors appeared from the bushes and attacked the men who were all brutally killed. All of them had guns but they'd made their minds up beforehand that they wouldn't use them in order to kill any of the Indians. They wouldn't shoot. They played such value on the souls of these savages that they wouldn't take a single life. They knew they were ready, the missionaries, to meet the Lord, but the Indians were not. When later the lifeless bodies of the five missionaries were discovered strewn across Palm Beach, Nat's wristband 
had smashed against a stone as he fell and the hands had stopped at 3.12 p.m. It was almost to today's date, it was the 8th of January, but the year 1956 when they went to glory. At half past four, the time that the men were due to radio back, Marge Saint turned on the radio and the other missionary wives waited anxiously to hear how the second face-to-face meeting with the missionaries and the Indians had developed. The radio was silent. They assumed at first there was some technical difficulty, but the wives just quietly continued all day with their daily chores and duties. Their anxiety increased when the plane didn't return in the evening, but they gave themselves over to the Lord and to his care. The five young women and their little children experienced a great calm over the next five days of uncertainty. When finally the news broke that the five missionaries were missing, the American army sent a a search helicopter over the site and the pilot uh, reported seeing Nat's plane sitting in the middle of Palm Beach with all its fabric stripped away. But he radioed back, no sign of the men. U.S. Army soldiers organized a search party to go into the Orca Territory on foot. And a few days later, it was confirmed that all five had been killed. A rescue plane flew the widows over the site and let them see where their husbands had died. And they calmly agreed it was the most beautiful cemetery they'd ever seen. Were the deaths of these five young, talented Americans completely wasted? They had absolutely everything to live for. They had lovely wives, beautiful children, prospects, talents. The news of their martyrdom for these Stone Age killers that they'd never even met made headlines around the world. But the story didn't end there. Because two years later, De Yuma, the orca lady that became a Christian, returned back to her tribe to live with them and to share her faith. And then the Indians invited Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, and her little daughter, Valerie, along with Nat Saint's sister, Rachel, invited them to live amongst these people. And the incredible thing is that eventually seven of the nine Indians who murdered the missionaries came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And more incredible, perhaps, is that Stephen, Steve Saints, the son of Nat, uh, the pilot, also moved in with his family to live amongst this tribe. The story of the orca savage Minkai is perhaps the most amazing of all. He was personally responsible for the death of two of the men, Ed and Nat. He became a Christian and he asked God to forgive him. He said that his spear that had been used to kill was nothing. He had a black heart, but the blood of Jesus had washed it clean. 
He knew that Stephen's saint had no father, so he adopted him as his own tribal son. And he accepted Steve's children as his grandchildren. The Christian testimony that Jim Elliot and the others began 1955, 1956, when they were killed, touched many people at the time. There was an unprecedented response in America of young people offering for missionary work. And that has gone on ever since, as people have been challenged by the Christian testimony of these martyrs. We end this morning, and you've listened patiently, with Jim Elliot's now famous words, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. As we start this new year, may the Lord give all of us the grace and the strength of his Holy Spirit to live for Jesus in some measure as these wonderful men did. They sang a hymn, the five Christian missionary martyrs, uh, before they went on that last, for them, ill-fated journey uh, to meet the Indians. And we're going to close our service by singing that wonderful hymn, We Rest on Thee, Our Shield and Our Defender. <laughs>